welcome to the Writer's Block podcast. I'm writer Polly Roberts and every episode I will be in conversation with another Cornwall-based writer, discussing process, why we write and the part Cornwall plays in our work. I hope you find some wisdom and inspiration in what you hear. The Writer's Block is the creative writing centre for Cornwall. With innovation and creativity at our heart, we offer both a place to write and a unique approach to developing confidence and skills in writing for everyone. Patrick Gale is a novelist living near Land's End. His 17th novel, Mother's Boy, has just been released in March 2022. In 2017, Patrick was screenwriter for the BBC drama Man in an Orange Shirt. Patrick is artistic director of the North Cornwall Book Festival and patron of Penzance Literary Festival and the Charles Causley Trust. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Hi, Patrick, and welcome to the podcast. Hello, Polly. <laughs> it's so lovely to have you here. And we, we have just been talking about your um, skill at online talks and online systems already. So that's a new strand to your writer's bow, is it now? Uh, well, I, I'm a typical Aquarian. I love new technologies. Uh-huh. Um, even though I still write my novels in ink, I do embrace all these other platforms. <laughs> so you still write every novel in ink first, do you? Oh, God, yes. Yes. Oh. And I, I, I'm, I'm quite a proselytizer for the benefits of it. I, um, I used to drive my students mad back in the day when I regularly taught for Arvon by insisting on one inky day of the course. <laughs> they had to have an inky day. And they'd all say, oh, my wrist hurts. And the, but at oh. the end of the day, they would all admit, actually, they'd done really good work. Oh, that's so, so interesting, you know, isn't it? It, it is a work. completely different thing. I, I'd always been writing longhand first. I, yeah, every single draft of a novel I've written has been longhand first. And then something good, weird good. has happened recently where I've started finding I can flow easier going straight to the laptop and it's so weird i don't trust that word easier i immediately think oh this is facility creeping in because i'm a very fast typist yeah so i can i can type believably you know reams of stuff and it'll just be crap (laughs) (laughs) that's my worry whereas there's something about the pen in the hand that acts like a break It, it means the words come at a a pace a little bit slower than, than oh, thought. That's and so interesting. But also, crucially, I like to see my crossings out mm. because I often change my mind or I find I've gone off down a rabbit hole that I didn't mean to go down. And yeah. it's like when you were being taught sums when you were little and you couldn't get long division right and the teacher would always say, show your work <laughs> so that they could see where you'd gone wrong. And it, it's the same with, I think we should always show our workings when we're writing. Yeah. Right. It's actually it's quite oh. pleasing visually now. Now that you're saying, I'm imagining these pages with with their lines and their crossings out and their with page after page that. crossed out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, what I tend to end up with is little little circles and a series of arrows, and it'll say sort of move this paragraph to you. Know, it's it's like 19th century oh, cut and paste. Move this paragraph to two pages <laughs> later. <laughs> so, do do you do the first edit? On those handwritten as well, or, or do you type up first? And yeah, then yes, well, I try to avoid doing too much rewriting as I go along. Right. So I try to get a whole draft down in ink, and then wow. I will 
have a, a, a several weeks of cursing as I fail to read my own handwriting. <laughs> and I, I, I type it up and then I print it out, but with really big spacing. And I would then work in ink again oh, on the printout. Wow. So I think all the really creative work is done with a pen. Yeah, yeah. Um, That's it's totally different when I do screenplays, though, because screenplay writing and script writing for theatre, there's such a heavy load of industry layouts involved that it would drive you mad if you tried doing it yes, in ink. You, okay. you, you, it really helps having that software to pop the to words be, in yeah. the right place. But also it stops you writing too much because usually right. when you're working, certainly when you're writing for television, there's always a really sharp number of minutes you're allowed yeah. and, and you, you need a break in the shape of... Um, is there one you prefer? Because I know I read somewhere, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that at first you had wanted to be a script writer and then you'd moved into Well, I wanted to be an actor, first <laughs> and foremost. So the theatre is my first love. Um, okay. And I'm having a very exciting time at the moment because I'm working on two different theatre projects. Um, not as an actor, but, but, but you know, though I'd love to get involved. Um, one of them's a musical based on my TV drama man in the orange shirt right. and the other is a an original theater piece but developed from my novel take nothing with you right um oh, how exciting. And, and I, i'm really enjoying the collaborative aspect of that and but also the fun of working with a songwriter and the, the process I've, I've gradually realized that if i'm really proud of a scene i mustn't show it to the composer because he just turns it into a song and i lose the scene you know my best speech will get put into a song no. so <laughs> i'm learning now to write you know, like when you were not not wanting your neighbors to copy you in a school quiz oh, that's I, I kind of, so funny Keep i have a metaphorical private. elbow around my work <laughs> That's amazing. So you are, but it is really collaborative. You're kind of constantly in contact with the others. Working. The musical, it's very collaborative. Yes, oh. um, and and the, take nothing with you. The the play will be as well because that's um, I'm working with this uh, fantastic young director from Bristol, Jesse Jones, who's a great, is very collaborative and is a great believer in workshopping. So yeah. he and I initially will workshop the shape of the play. And then um, because it's about music and we're really keen to have all the actors playing instruments on stage, well, they're going to have a whole week of music workshops oh, wow. based on, on on what we've done so far. So, and I, so at the end of all of that, I will finally be allowed to sit down and write a script. But, okay. but it, we have to get it all into shape first. And you like that because part of... Being a novelist oh, is it. being so on your own all the time and, and having I only know, you to drive it. I know. And actually being a novelist is all about control, isn't it? You yes. Can have an un it, yes. You have total control of your That's little world it. and you have an unlimited budget and you can yeah. have as many characters <laughs> as you like. And, I mean, and that, that's the, the, the soul-destroying part of um, writing for screen, especially, yeah. because there's so much money involved. You've got people leaning over your shoulder all the time saying, oh, no, we can't have the plane crash. No, no, we can't have that many characters. And there are these restraints all the time. But I, I really enjoy that constant feedback mm. as a change from writing a novel. Yeah. Writing a novel is wonderful, but it's a deeply, deeply neurotic process. Yes. In fact, I, I, I've come to think of it as a willed nervous breakdown. <laughs> so I know, oh, God, it's coming up, like this black cloud, the next book, and I have to will myself into this 
wow. this retreat in a way and and become more and more obsessed by the subject and the character and do you, do you find that kind of neuroses um, that that getting sucked in doesn't drop until you finish the the book no it doesn't drop and once you start it's like an unstoppable process yes. and and I've learned I think I think a part of becoming a writer is you have to develop quite a lot of self knowledge yeah um, because yeah. you are pri- your primary source of yeah. everything and I I've learned to recognize that if I try to interrupt the process it just makes me get very ratty and depressed mm. and weird and you know some some days the the only cure is just to sit in an armchair with your notebook and get on and with just it. keep going um, I so yeah. agree with you on this because I, I've been thinking a lot about the fact that in in writing choosing to write a long piece in particular for me I've mm. always gone towards the novel and people are like why don't you just write a short story and it's like hmm no <laughs> I've got a novel there <laughs> but it's that it's the it's something is about the gaining control and I think there is also that thing that you say very true of you oneself being the resource and I know for me that it's a very self-absorbed time when I'm writing where I'm I'm really trying to delve into something that feels out of my control and gain control over it through the process of writing the novel. That yeah, rings really true. But also, don't you find there's an element of um, loss of self? Yes. At least for me, that that's the big kind of turn-on of writing fiction is the loss of myself. I like going inside these other people and yeah. kind of possessing them almost and losing myself and when I'm rewriting I I tend to cut out things which I feel are too me oh, if, if I feel I'm showing too much I try to cut that out what, um, why is that what what's the feeling for you of not wanting to have those parts in it I think I think it's more it's a kind of accuracy mm. and a purity yeah. thing um Actually, no, I've never, there, there are wonderful writers who I, I respect deeply, who are, I think of as stylists, um, and they're the writers who you never forget that they are, their voice is in your head. Yeah. You never forget, because they won't let you forget. And it's not just that they write about themselves, it's that their particular voice is very, very them. Yeah. So, you know, writers like Will Self, Jeanette Winterson, yeah. you, you hear their voice all the time. Whereas, I don't know, Sarah Waters, for instance, mm. clearly works really hard, and Kazuo Ishiguro as well, at, at removing herself. Mm. It's almost like a kind of dec- a decorum thing in the writing. Mm. Um, and I'm sure people who know them well recognise bits of them in what they write, but it's it's not about them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the style, the, the, there is a style, the style is very... Uh, glassy yeah it doesn't get in the way I I always say the thing my dream when I'm writing fiction is that the reader will forget they're holding a book yeah I, I, I don't I cut out anything that might make them remember their reading yeah and I, I think your books really do that they're so evocative and and such vivid worlds and but it's interesting oh, to me kind, because but... you have developed over time you've started dealing with themes that are close to home for you and I know a couple of your books are are close to autobiographical and some of the stuff that happens but you've made that choice to yes it was a conscious decision I think when I was about to hit 40 I I had a sort of Proustian moment and realized oh I've lived enough now (laughs) (laughs) my larder is pretty well stocked um 
and I don't need to make things up necessarily. Mm. I can at least you know, shamelessly use bits from my life as raw material. Yeah. Um, and certainly, God, my poor family. Once I started writing about them, I mean that that is a very well stocked larder. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, it's funny that my my sister, he, it's very kind. And, you know, she reads everything I write, but she she says she does it with a certain trepidation. Mm. She's never quite sure what I'm going right. to put in there. And I do always try really hard to respect. Her privacy and my brother's privacy and not to put them in yeah um, yeah that's a I difficult think, element yeah. isn't it that the making use of that larder and really mining yourself and at the same time yeah that consideration for everyone else that's naturally going to come into it then and yeah. how brilliant if they're generous to yes it. i mean dead, dead i think dead relatives dead relatives are a fair game <laughs> um, just go straight there <laughs> It's funny. I'm I'm working. The novel I'm going to write next I, is is about my mother and my grandmother okay. who are both dead, but there is an aunt who is still alive, and a, a guilty part of me is thinking, oh, maybe I wait a couple more years. <laughs> then I can really go for it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard. Yeah, it's hard. No, that's really um, interesting. I'm I'm so impressed that you've already got another book on the go. I wonder. Well, two things really. I'm wondering how long does it normally take you to write a novel and yeah do you nearly always instantly have another one up your sleeve when you finish with oh one? god you know i'm like heathrow airport at seven in the morning that this is always a holding pattern of projects kind of i mean i'd be really worried if i looked up and there was nothing there wow. um so yeah then the the book i've just published and and the next book have both been hovering for a while okay. um and I've been, I've been putting the, the next book I know is about my mother and my grandmother, but it, it's still in a formless state, yeah. and I, I've got to wrestle it into a shape in my head before I can I can start uh, work on it properly. And I often find actually that the best thing to do is is research. Mm. So I, I need to know better the two cities where it's set. Mm. Um, so I'll spend. I'm going to spend time in the course of this book tour I'm on at the moment. I'll. I'll take time out to go and spend a few days in Liverpool and spend a few days in Wakefield and mm. just just walk the streets that my ancestors walked and you know, get a feel for the place. And that often place often gets my juices flowing. It right. helps me find my way in. So that's often where you begin. Yes, yes. Oh, it's 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 curiously basic, but I. I think a sense of place is so important, not just in an evocative way, but because if you're writing about people who lived in a certain place, that place will have shaped them. Yeah. That's how... So I, I wrote a novel set in Pendine, of all places, mm. and I just spent hours and hours walking around Pendine and thinking, well, if I'd grown up here, how would I, how would I be? Yeah. How would I differ? Um, yeah, right. Yeah, it's really interesting to think of place that deeply in terms of actually you could just go around the corner and it will completely shape a, a different person, a different life. And Totally, yeah. yes. And I think especially with historical fiction, this is mm. even more the case because you're writing in a period when people didn't travel so much. So my most recent novel set in the early 20th century when people in Cornwall, I mean, to go into Devon was a big deal. Yeah. Um, and and if you were more than a few hours away on a train, you, know, you got homesick. It yes. was it's, it's very different now when we, we travel so readily. 
Yeah, it's that's really interesting, isn't it? And, and that thing about writing historical fiction. So your your latest book, the literally just published in March this month, this month. Yes, um, yes, <laughs> Mother's <yeah>. Boy. <laughs> um, that is a historical fiction book again. And and so, do you? How do you feel? Like, how do you feel the confidence to jump between? historical fiction and other fi- like yeah it's so interesting well in my head it's no different mm. it's just a novel and the discipline is the same in that what i'm trying to do is tell a believable story and honor the material kind of be accurate mm. I, I always think of accuracy rather than invention when i'm writing i'm just trying to be accurate and um if of course if it's historical and it's about real people there's a lot more research so for mother's boy it it was basically like researching a a biography of charles causley's early life um i had to know everything i could know before i could begin to shape the fiction around it um but i'm very male i think i'm it's a there's a very gendered thing here i think i am quite male in my approach in that i i don't feel secure in a project until i know all the facts. Whereas I know Helen Dunmore always said when writing historical fiction, she would write the story first and then do the research because she said then you knew what you needed to find out. Um, But for me, I I just find so often it's while I'm researching that ideas come to me or that I stumble on some little detail that really makes a, a bit of the story glow like with this with Charles Causley story I I knew I wanted to write a chapter about his early boyhood and his relationship with his father because I knew his father died when he was very very young of yeah. TB and it was only when researching TB and domestic TB care in the early 20th century I came across this little detail of a thing called a blue henry which was a little blue bo- blue glass bottle which tuberculosis patients would carry in their pocket. And it was a portable spittoon, quite simply, with a little silver lid. Yeah. Uh, but somehow I just thought, actually, as a five-year-old boy, if your dad kept producing one of those from his pocket, you'd be fascinated and you'd mm. want to hold it and you'd want to click the lid up and down. And that really helped me. Mm. Um, and I wouldn't have had that detail if I'd written the chapter first and then gone looking yeah. for it. That's um, so interesting. I, I, I'm curious about whether that process is just always the same for you because you're reminding me that I, one of my first well I think it was the first novel I wrote very much came from a point of research it had a lot of science in it and nature mm. facts and it was about reading about nature and all of these facts and all this science that I got so excited my imagination was just going wild and it was like I've got to put all of this into something whereas the later things that I've written more recently it kind of surprises me that they've come completely out of the imagination instead but is it always the same for you research kind of starts first often yes mm. I mean if I'm writing short fiction that's different because often there's a discipline there you're, you're told oh you if it's safe for radio 4 they the story is really short um yeah. so you right from the off you know you've got to come up with an idea that will fit a tiny space and yet be emotionally satisfying and so that's unlikely to be something that needs lots and lots of research. Yeah. Um, it's a funny one, though, because I, I, even with my non-historical fiction, I still do research, partly because I've never had a grown-up job. So <laughs> I often end up researching the jobs that the characters do. I need to know more about them. Oh, so I wrote a novel called The Whole Day Through, where the hero was um, a venereologist. 
Um, and I suddenly remembered I used to sing in a choir next door to this guy who worked in a, one of the London clap clinics. So I <clears throat> rather surprised him by saying that if I send you a train ticket, um, will you come and stay for a long weekend and just talk me through a day in the life of a clap <laughs> wow. clinic? And he said, oh, yes, I can do that. And I can bring you photographs, too. It was amazing. Wow, um, yeah. But but that's typical because because to make that character come to life, it, it wasn't enough just to say he is a venereologist. I, I really had to know gory details. Mm, um, and your characters really, they do feel so embodied. It really does feel like entering into someone else's eyes. What you were saying about just the details that came to your mind, thinking about Charles Causley being little, they're not the details I would have observed or been able to think up. So it makes it so real. And uh, how do you walk around with all of these, I want to say hundreds, maybe even thousands of characters (laughs) that you've invented over time? Oh, I'd let them go. I mean, my head is a very noisy place anyway. Um, And as I say, each each novel is is like a, a sort of slow motion willed nervous breakdown um you you it's a necessary process i've i well for me at least i have yeah. to um sink into those characters and they have to become more real to me than my friends yeah. and um, it's bad luck on the friends really. <laughs> <laughs> so it's re- it's really all absorbing to you in those moments when you're going into it it has to be yeah. i think because if you want your reader to be equally absorbed uh, yeah and I think I think the process of reading and writing are, are so close. They're just two halves of the same mm. circle. And um, I, I had a I, I've been blessed in my two of the editors I've had over my certainly over the last fifteen years. Um, one of them was well, they're both legends in their way. One of them was a really extraordinary one um, called Penelope Hall who worked for Chateau for ages, and she was sort of my secret editor. She would. Um, edit books for me unofficially in exchange for a case of champagne or whatever. And, um, <laughs> but the, the, one, one of the best bits of advice she, she gave to me was so simple. She just said, remember the reader. Right. Always remember the reader. Um, and I do now. I always, I, I, I pull myself up short at certain points and think, what do I want the reader to feel at this mm. point? Um, and she would occasionally pull me up short after reading a first draft by saying, this chapter made me feel this. Is that what you wanted? Mm. Um, and it's so easy to get lost as a writer in your your own yeah. clever clogs, plans and things. Yeah. And what, what Penny did was just to remind me, actually, this is, this is the writing is about the reading yeah. at every stage. And, and you'll always bear in mind what your reader knows, what they don't know. It's um, wonderful because that, yeah. that really keeps you it, connected. Well, it sounds so obvious, but actually it's amazingly easy yes, to forget. Absolutely. You, 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 you tie yourself in knots sometimes. Just just like sometimes I, I find I need to remind myself, just tell the story, yeah. you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, just get on with it and tell the story. You, you find yourself getting getting bogged down in these, these kind of black holes of, of narrative that don't have to be problematic, but you're mm. making them problematic by fretting about the style or the structure or mm. something. Um, Do you feel like you're becoming more skilled at, at noticing when you're you're doing that unnecessarily and how to pull yourself out? I, I think I'm getting better slowly <laughs> at knowing myself, yeah. yeah. Um, I've, I've learned tricks over the years, the uh, ways of tricking myself and um, and things to beware of. I think one of the things I've learned to be really wary of is dialogue. Mm. 
because uh, time and again, dialogue can, writing dialogue can turn into this kind of elephant trap you fall into and you get stuck in these scenes that seem to go on and on and on. Mm. And it's because of the dialogue. Um, dialogue is the, I think, the single hardest thing any fiction writer mm. ever has to do. And it is, if you think about it, the slowest thing yeah. in any narrative. Yeah. It creates this illusion of, of speed. You often hear student writers say, oh, I put all this dialogue in because I thought it would make it pacey. Actually, no, it moves at the snail pace of real life. Oh, um, that's so interesting. And, but sometimes you, you can get trapped, I find, and you catch yourself just going on and on with some yeah. thing. And that's, that's an instance where I've really learned from my screenwriting experience. There's this advice that's very hackneyed advice but really good advice to screenwriters which is to get in late and get out early so you you know what your scene involves you Mm. know what has to be achieved by it but you do not have to start with hello hello how are you today and you don't have to go right through to the end you can you can change gear and swoop in and actually you often only need on a novel in a novel encounter and you're a scene in a novel you often only need one or two lines of the actual dialogue and the rest of it can just be reported speech or not even that oh gosh Um, I remember I I did my master's up at Bath Spa and and I had Faye Weldon as a tutor and I remember her introducing reported speech to me and just kind of going through a piece that I'd written and doing it for me aloud, just saying, and <laughs> this whole page, I would say, and just saying two sentences where it was all, and I was yeah. like, that's mind-blowing. Thank you. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> yeah, really yeah it is, but it, it sounds obvious, but often it's not, you yeah. know, and and um, I've, I've seen really exciting writing workshops around dialogue. I saw one where um, a couple of the students had to be actors. They had to get up and and talk to each other about something. Um, You know, they planned it in advance and they just came in and did a scene, as it were. And then all the writing students had to do their version of what they'd just seen. Um, Oh, wow. And of course, nobody can write fast enough to do every line of the dialogue, but it it really helped because it really showed that actually every encounter between two or three characters has a viewpoint. There's usually, it's usually written from one viewpoint Mm. for a start. Um, but also the thing it really brings home is we're really bad at listening to each other. So mm. well, I think a crucial mistake a lot of writers make with dialogue is to have it succeed. Most most conversations fail when you think about it, because most of the time we're not listening to each other properly. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we, right. we, we think we've heard the other person, yes. but we haven't really. I guess that um, brings it back to that what you're trying to do, make things really um, real. <laughs> and, yeah, and so make the reader is, re- uh, yeah, the <laughs> accuracy. Yeah, yeah wow. Yeah. So, how, do tell me, how long is your average <laughs> writing period to get, how long are you in that existential oh. deep, <laughs> deep pit? Well, my books seem to take about three years in total. Wow. Well, I, yeah, but that that doesn't all involve writing. I think I yeah. think usually it's about a year of what I think of as compost, which mm. is when. So I'm currently in the compost stage with my next novel. I know yeah. I know who the characters are more or less. I know what the story is more or less, and I am willfully not going to put anything down on paper for several months. I'm just get, I'm just feeding feeding it, feeding the compost heap. And I'll, I'll let those ideas mulch down. 
when I actually start to write, um, that usually takes about another year, I suppose. Right. Um, so I'm quite slow. I am quite slow, but I, it's partly because I get distracted by other projects quite mm. often. Um, I, I like that. I think a year sounds like <laughs> I get frightened <laughs> by the people that go, oh, I just sit down and knock it out in a few weeks oh, or months. <laughs> I, I've, I've learned to be really wary of those people. And I also, I'm also really, this is another great thing in favour of inky writing. When you do inky writing, when someone says to you, so what's your average word count? You can just look totally mm, blank and say, well, lovely. maybe... Maybe ten words on a good day. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know because um, it, it's yes. it's meaningless counting how many words you do. Yeah. And I think yeah. I also I've I've learnt that so the writer's block actually is a symptom of um, starting too soon. Mm. I, th I I think if you if you hurry the compost stage and feel you've got to get in there and get some words down and because you've read some mm. stupid American book that says you've got to do your daily pages. <gasps> of course you freeze up because, yeah. because you're not ready. You're, 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 it, it's, it's like a sort of, yeah. you're almost aborting the characters because you, 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 they haven't, you haven't let them form yet. I, I, think, I think it's really important to take your time and, and let it grow naturally. Um, and I try, I try not to start the actual writing until I can't bear not to. Right. So yeah, when I'm really ready, God, I'm ready, and I'm I'm you know getting really ratty because I'm not <laughs> able to get on with it. Um, if it feels as if I'm sitting down to invent stuff, that's a really bad sign. Right. Um, and I I would avoid it like the plague. Uh, would you kind of keep a journal or notes or random jots during that composting time? I I do. I don't keep a journal. Um, but what I do do is I write in my, my I have these hardback notebooks and I write in them from two directions. So one one in one direction, it's what will become the finished prose of yeah. the novel. But if you flip the book over, the other side is where I put notes. Right. So all my books start with just the notes end of the notebook. That's and fantastic. that's where I grow characters. It's where I will jot down notes to self. I'll take notes from books or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I find that's really helpful as well, because if I'm having a bad day, once the book is underway, if I find I'm having a bad day or a bad week, I can just flip it over and go back to the notes yeah. and remind myself of the ideas I've maybe forgotten. Yes. That I had yeah, I, um, I think that's beautiful. Oh, gosh, what a lovely idea. And the composting period, that just feels so valuable to me and feels so easy to be forgotten. I've I've definitely been there myself and, and I... Yeah, I mean, for me, really, in a way, the last year and a half has been a bit of that. And I've been starting to think, oh, God, nothing's coming out. And then it, it seemed like magic. All of a sudden, these things just start. It's almost like, well, that's a gross image. But the, the worms are really starting yeah. to work and it's moving. Yeah. And it's, yeah. Exactly. It takes on a life of its own. Yeah. And, um, yeah. No, I, 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 had, I had very good advice quite early on, which was to go away and read Jung because <laughs> mm. Jung is I mean there's a lot of nonsense in Jung and Freud but I think Jung is really good on the sources of creativity and right. listening to yourself and I, I, I taught myself there's a, a technique there's a little book you can get on a book's tiny book called a I think it's called a, a Jungian handbook of dreaming right. where you train yourself how you train yourself to remember your dreams 
um, which sounds incredibly solipsistic, but actually it's a really good discipline mm. because quite often you, you have amazing ideas in your sleep. Yes. <laughs> and and if you get into this habit of holding your dreams in your conscious mind, you sort of it's almost like filing. You wake up and you move the dream across to the hard memory yes. where it will stay for a bit. Um, once you start working on a creative project, you find that in your dream life, you're still working and the compost mm. is really you know, shifting around. Um, oh, that's so interesting. But I think as a whole, that sort of process teaches you to listen to yourself and not push yourself. Yeah. I think, I think we're, we're getting terribly all too good at putting ourselves under pressure. And I don't think that's where creativity yeah. naturally comes from. Deadlines are a great thing. And sometimes these enforced structures are a really useful thing as well. Like being told, we want a short story from you, but it's got to be about some aspect of Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. Or it's got to be exactly <clears throat> 560 words long or something. That can be useful. But in terms of your daily writing, I think you know, pressure mm. is... Pressure never helps. <laughs> no, and I, I think it's it's interesting that most writers can be quite descriptive about creativity and, and I think it can be easily forgotten well, sometimes or some people might easily try and push that part aside and go straight to the, the work part. But actually it's just this real <laughs> fragile, ethereal and quite amazingly magical thing to play with that, that needs mm. a lot of nurturing and yeah... Yes. And we all find our different ways of stimulating it. I mean, yes. some people listen to music, some people... I'm going for walks really helps. I find my, my working days begin and end with a walk with the dogs. And it's mm. like a, a pressure chamber or a depressuring chamber coming out of the, book, the current work. And there's a, funny enough, there's a, book, there's a book coming out later this year about just this. It's a series of essays by wildly different writers about walking. And the centrality of going for walks in their, their working oh, life. It's so interesting. Oh, that is interesting. interesting. Oh, um, I'll have to get that. Wow. Because we are, you know, we all have, it's a very, it's the ultimate sedentary job, right? Yes. But it, sometimes I think it really helps to get away from the work. Yes. Um, yeah. Obviously it's in your head still, but just physically get away, get some oxygen in your lungs. And I find as I'm walking at the beginning of the day, I'm thinking about what I'm going to write. But that walk at the end of the day is also useful because it's where I will kind of think ahead to the next day yes. and, I don't know, Actually assess. Create that sp- um, yeah. yeah. I remember reading, um, I think it was Jay Griffiths that talks about the kind of etymology between wondering and wondering, the two, the two oh, wonderings yes. <laughs> and, and that kind of, yeah, how the, they do just join up. And I think you're right, there's space for both. There's the one where you can kind of digest the ideas or mull them around and then there's the bit where you can actually move get a bit of movement and move forwards and move away yeah. from and yeah and, oh, but you need to walk on your own it's no good walking with another oh, person especially if they're talkative <laughs> what about your dogs are they distracting dogs are fine <laughs> dogs are very good sort of passive quiet editors they they, they do their own thing but uh, i think my, my dogs are quite used to me talking to myself <laughs> as well which i do a lot <laughs> That's fab. I was wondering as well about your garden, because that must take time from you. But is that part of the process of writing for you as well? Can that play a part? Oh, God, it's just a wonderful displacement activity. And it's looking it's looking like hell on earth at this time of year. Um, 
because it's so windy here. We get loads of detritus blows in and I just think there's no point tidying it up until we're past the March equinox and then right. I'll become a gardener again. But I do, I, it, it plays quite a good role. There, there are certain gardening tasks I love which are very, very repetitive, like deadheading roses where you can do it with half a brain, snip, 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 and in your head you're thinking about a plot point or something. Yeah, that's that's really nice, isn't it, to have something that you can do with your hands that yeah ironing is good too and making bread similarly they're they're really good writerly activities because you're you've got something to show for it you've got a pile of beautifully ironed handkerchiefs or something (laughs) or you've got a a loaf of bread but the actual process um is one that allows you to suspend your hands can get on with it while your brain is elsewhere which is lovely yeah i like this a lot actually this thinking of ways that are helpful but also that mean that you can satisfy it because something about writing to me is that fact that you don't have a finished product as we've just talked about for a long time and it's hard to kind of show what all that work is but like you say to actually have as part of it being able to produce those loaves of bread those beautifully ironed hankies those nice dead-headed roses (laughs) it's lovely (sighs) I like that a lot um, I wonder as well when you you've so we've talked about place um, being an important starting point to you and and the garden playing its place in your process of writing as well. But what, what, how does Cornwall play a part in all of this? Because you moved down here quite quickly, didn't you? Yes, I've spent most of my working life here. Um, it it does play a big part, but I I don't make special claims for Cornwall mm. in that way. I I think. Wherever I lived, the landscape would play a part. I'm, right. I'm just very open to landscape. The thing, the thing that's really special about Cornwall, especially West Cornwall, where I live, is simply that there are so many creative people down here. Yes. I mean, just up the road, I've got a. There's an amazing composer and a potter and a painter and and you know my other half is a sculptor. Yes. It, it, because there are so many of us creating, you never feel you need to apologise for the weird behaviour mm. that occasionally is necessary. Um, either the, the you know, deep unsociability yeah. or just the, you know, the the fact that you've, you're have you not answering the phone. Um, yeah. People understand, which is lovely. Mm. But also they, they don't put you on a pedestal, which I think is something that's really unhealthy to be treated yes. as anything special. So I, I love the fact that, that you know, someone will be impressed with the fact you've written a novel but they'll also be impressed with the fact that you've I don't know um built a dry stone wall or something it's it's just another kind of creativity Um, yeah that's so interesting I I'd not really thought about that the importance of that empathy almost and and that drawing the artists together as well of, of just yeah we live in the same way we we can yeah hold each other up yeah and also ground each other and that's that's yes, I mean the 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 friend of ours is a, a this amazing potter. He lives up the road. Um, I I love the fact that occasionally he'll ring me or I'll ring him, basically just to say, "How's it going? It's going really badly." <laughs> oh yeah, it's really bad with me too. Anyway, it's just lovely to know. It's lovely to know he's there, yes. even if we're not seeing each other. Yeah, um, you know, yeah. Sitting in our separate studios. And is that community uh, important to you in terms of writers? Because I know you. Do you head North Cornwall Book Festival or you? 
Yes, I, well, I I, start, I helped start it, and I'm I'm, I'm I helped yes. start it at gosh nearly ten years ago now, and I've tried to model it on all the best bits I've ever experienced at book festivals. Um, and okay, we're not hugely well funded, so we can't send the authors home with goodie bags of you know, local wine and cheese or whatever. Yeah. But um, I have always made it a cornerstone of it that the festival needs to be small enough for us to be able to have all the authors stay for the whole thing so that as well as the public getting something out of it, the authors get out Mm. of it the deep pleasure of meeting each other, hanging out together, going to each other's talks. Because Mm. you go to some of the really big, very commercial festivals, like, I don't know, Cheltenham or Edinburgh, and you do feel a bit like processed meat because there are so many authors to be got through. The programme is so big. Yeah. that yes you, you might get a really good audience and sell lots of books but you've no sooner finished than they need you to leave because somebody else needs your hotel room yes. <laughs> and yeah. you know it, it's it's not it's all about the, the audience it's not about feeding the authors yeah. and I think I think authors need those because we tend to work in isolation I think it's really valuable to get to meet other writers that's and, so wonderful you know, normalize each other by realizing actually you've all got the same money worries or the same envies or whatever oh gosh it's so important um i'm really aware we're we're running out of time and there's so much more i could ask you but the hour has flown (laughs) (laughs) i'm really curious about so you've been in i want to know a bit more about mother's boy and you've been in cornwall you're so deeply grounded here and yet i've seen on your website that you were going here there and everywhere with this book now and and over quite a few months, actually, and I, I know you've just said earlier that that also is part of getting to spend some time researching for the next book. But yeah, yeah. how is that for you? This part where you then go round the country and talk about? Oh, it, I love but... it. I, I feel I'm with this book, especially. I feel I'm I'm a little bit like a preacher because I'm I'm spreading the word about Charles Causley because I am one of the patrons of the Charles yes. Causley Trust. So he's a subject. He's a writer dear to my heart. And and I love it when um, I start a talk and I do a quick straw poll of the audience and find that nobody has heard of Charles Causley. And mm. by the end, I check again, and lots of them are wanting to buy his poems. So um, oh, that's, that's very lovely. satisfying. Yeah. And and I just feel you know, he he's such an extraordinary writer, and his story is so moving, but also so mysterious. And it was one of those stories that um, I could only tell with fiction. Despite right. researching it like a biography, yeah. I knew there were going to be big emotional gaps in the story that I could only join with fiction. Yes. So. Oh, that's lovely. And and do you find it easy to go back into talking about it, even though it must have been a while now since you've actually finished that first? Time? I don't yet feel I've finished it. Um, in <gasps> fact, only last night, a friend from orchestra who used to be in the Navy came up and said, oh, yes, I read your book. There are several things you got wrong, you know, and proceeded to give me details of things I got wrong <laughs> about the Navy. Um, <clears throat> so in a way, I'm still thinking of the text as a work in progress. Mm. And to my editor's horror, I'm going to be sending her an email with these these corrections in <laughs> so we can at least have it right for the paperback. <laughs> That's the funny thing these days with digital publishing, because, yes, the book is in print. And you know, that print run has to sell out or begin to sell out before they'll print another print run. But with the e-edition that's going alongside it, I can make corrections 
overnight oh, and tomorrow wow. on everybody's Kindle, their version will be corrected. So um, oh, gosh, that's kind of exciting. Yeah, New that technology is exciting. Does have a, yeah, it is exciting. And it, it's it's nice to hear you caring about the stories so much still. And I, I guess it helps that Charles Causley was close to your heart anyway, for the fact that you, you still... Yeah, you're still interested, you're still involved, it's still something that you care about. Yeah, no, I'm very involved. And I love the fact, especially when I'm talking in Cornwall, I, I, I've always had people in the audience coming up afterwards saying, Mr. Causley used to teach me in primary school, oh, wow. which is wonderful to meet, to get that direct yeah. connection. Um, and to be told that your version of him rings true, again, is, is hugely reassuring. Yes, no, that's wonderful. Um, I will finish us off just I this is a, uh, sometimes an easy question sometimes a hard question but what is your average writing day when you are in that pit of your really working away at the book how how does that normally go when it's going really well um it will start with a dog walk for about half an hour 40 minutes and then I will usually start by reading what I wrote the day before and then picking up my pen halfway through, making a few changes and corrections, and then it will, I hope, just flow on from there. I I usually, uh, <clears throat> I am a very male writer. I usually have a plan. I, mm. I rarely stick to it, but um, I find it helps break a, the mountain of a novel down into bite-sized chunks, which aren't quite so overwhelming to get yes. through. And so I'll and I'll try to write until about one, one or two o'clock. And usually, if I'm my brain dips at that point, yeah. and that's when I'll I'll break for lunch. And I usually spend the afternoon, the kind of sleepier time, um, reading or answering emails or doing mm. admin. So actually, the actual writing day I find naturally is the morning. And then if I'm really lucky, if I'm somewhere where I'm not having to be sociable, I, I'll write again at night, which I love. But that's a rare that's a rare experience for me. I do occasionally treat myself and go away on a writing retreat. And when I do that, I will often write till very late at night because my brain really wakes up. If I can stay off the wine, my brain really wakes <laughs> up. <laughs> if you, I've learned the hard way, if you if you drink and carry on writing, you think it's wonderful. And then you look in the morning and think, what is this pile of crap? But, uh, <laughs> but it was a wonderful experience. It and was I, fun at the time, yeah. yeah. I wonder, you, you also mentioned earlier that your, your husband's a sculptor and I, does he have a similar... Uh, working pattern to you because that is like you've mentioned no his is subtly different because because he's also a working farmer and Mm. there are often farming tasks that can't be denied you know the cattle at this time of year he has to feed the cattle first thing and so on so he will often start later but then work he works solidly through the afternoon when i'm having my some sleepy period i'll hear his hammer and chisel going away out in the barn (laughs) Um, what's quite nice is his his, the, his studio is in a barn just across the garden from where my writing shed is. So, oh, if he's working amazing. well, I can hear it, and that spurs me on. Oh, that's really that's so nice because that's something I really think a lot of us writers noticed the loss of during lockdown was that thing of sitting next to somebody, like being in a public space, being in a library, and hearing other pens go or oh, whatever yes. other art yeah. it is. Oh, Patrick, it's been so wonderful to talk. Thank you so oh, much. It's been a delight. Thank you. And we look forward to We've got you at our speakeasy coming up in the start of April. And 
yeah, Mother's Boy is out now. <laughs> Thank you, Patrick. Thank you, Polly. We'll be back with another episode of the Writer's Block podcast and another inspiring conversation with a Cornwall-based writer. Click subscribe to hear when this episode is released and to help us share these conversations with others. You've been listening to the Writer's Block podcast. Find out more about the Writer's Block at thewritersblock.org.uk. Music and sound was by Jimmy Marshall from southwestsonic.com. Thank you for listening.